Welcome to an episode of Find Your Voice, a movement led by yours truly, Aaron Dew, a guy who has overcome crippling anxiety, adversity, and difficulty like so many of you in life, whose main goal now is to help you combat your excuses, take control of your life, write your own story, and most importantly, find your voice. So now, without further ado, I welcome the host of the show himself, Mr. Aaron Dew. What's going on people? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Voice. My name is Aaron and as always, I am the host of the show. So before I begin this announcement, I just want to say a massive, massive, massive thank you to every single one of you who have listened to this show. I also want to say a massive thank you to anyone who has previously listened to a show and left a review because it's your reviews that have helped us get into the news and noteworthy on iTunes. Now, this is no small feat. This is actually an incredible achievement. And the more I research it, the more proud I actually feel. But more importantly, I'm so proud of my guests and I'm so grateful that they were able to share their journey. But I'm also so happy to have such loyal listeners like yourselves to really support this movement. And that's exactly what it is. It's a movement. It's about trying to inspire people, try and put a positive beacon of light into the world and really try and get everyone to live their best life, combat their excuses and really change their perception and mindset. So without rambling on too much, we have a really, really exciting two-part episode coming up for you now. Now, this is actually our first ever two-part episode and conscious of your time, which is obviously our biggest and most important commodity. I'm going to jump straight into this one. Okay, so I just want to start by thanking Louise for her time and coming onto the show today to share her story, which I'm sure you're all going to find absolutely inspirational. So Louise, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, Aaron. I'm good. Fantastic, fantastic. So I just want to say thank you. Uh, I appreciate you're your welcome. time. And I'm really looking forward to this one. So this was actually a recommendation from somebody else you may have all heard previously on a podcast it's episode number 14 and it's by Bep Daliwal and it's something that I urge all of you to check out because it was actually within the first four hours it got the most number of listens straight away so it's, it's a great hit and I recommend you all going back to that however moving on now we have another fantastic guest in Louise so Louise I think it's really important for the listeners to understand your story and understand a little bit about yourself as well Ooh. so if you if you wouldn't mind if you could just kind of give us an insight into yourself a little bit about your journey and what basically brings you here today yeah no worries so um if I'm completely honest I never thought three even four years ago that I would be someone that would be sat being interviewed on a podcast talking mm -hmm. about the subject that I'm going to bring to the table today, which is um, loss, bereavement and life after living through sort of that kind of trauma. Um, so, so my story is um, I'm from Nottingham, from Robin's Hood. Uh, that's where I kind of grew up, grew up and spent my childhood. Um, mm -hmm. Had a fantastic childhood. My parents um, really sort of put myself and my brother first. Um, I was kind of one of those people at school that was not really super cool, but also, I hope, not too much of a mega geek. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, you sort of did, did the normal stuff kind of growing up, 
going into nightclubs probably too young, <laughs> being carried out of nightclubs after having drunk too much with my friends, also <laughs> probably too young. Um, went away to university at 18, um, where I studied French um, and actually lived abroad for a year when I was 19, which was quite young. And that was, I suppose, my first experience, if I'm being brutally honest, of, of mm-hmm. life, if that makes sense. So in terms of really realising things around um, loneliness, relationships, um, being able to kind of go it alone and, and do things for yourself because essentially when you're on your own in a foreign country, you, you have mm. no one else to rely on other than you, yourself and I. Um, so that was that was a really, really kind of big experience in my life. Um, graduated in 2006, um, probably like many, feeling really expectant about what life had to offer me and had all of these huge plans around what I thought I was going to be and what car I thought I was going to drive and what house I wanted to have. Um, hadn't met kind of anyone special at that point. Um, mm-hmm. There'd been a few a few boys, but no one who'd kind of really made me sort of sit up and take notice. And mm. um, in 2006, I was accepted onto um, a training scheme, a graduate training scheme. And that was kind of, I suppose, the start of where my life really, really started to change. So I um, I started there in September. And mm-hmm. on my first day, in fact, before my, my first day, on the induction day, I met George, who I would fall in love with and marry. So we mm-hmm. were part of a group of about 30 people who all joined together. Um, and we had a great time. It was like being at university. You know, mm-hmm. we, were, we were there training together, living together, all became really, really great friends. But he was the guy that kind of more than anyone else, you know, was not love at first sight on any level. Um, I, you know, I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is so confident. You know, he's really sort of sure of himself. But we just became really great friends and we used to talk all the time. Um, And then it was that that Christmas. So this is the September when we started our job. And it was that Christmas when we... um, actually kind of had our first kiss so he'd he'd really really brazenly said when he first joined the business oh well I'm going to be I'm going to be in Edinburgh so I'm going to have a Hogmanay party and we're all going to come to Edinburgh and have this Hogmanay party and I remember thinking oh my god who is this guy like he's so (laughs) confident so anyway true to his words you know four months later there we all were sort of 20 or so of us at his flat in in Edinburgh and that's kind of where George and I had our first kiss, um, New Year's 2006, 2007. And after that, you know, my life, my life changed in an instant. I know for people that are listening that have maybe, you know, met someone that they know that they want to spend the rest of their life with, when you meet that special person, you know, really, it is everything that you've ever hoped for. It is mm. kind of like the movies and the songs and all of those Absolutely. other things. And it's, it's truly beautiful. It's a really amazing experience. Um, and we knew we knew from the outset that we we had something special. I think that often you do, you know, it was more than just a friendship. It was a kind of deep, respectful sort of love. It was it was it was powerful, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of went on living our lives together, you know, as what happens when you meet the person that you want to spend your life with. You know, you stop being you, you stop being us. Um, our lives became more and more intertwined. So we. We lived apart, we lived together, we rented together, we bought a house together. Um, his kind of his career went from kind of great to amazing as he kind of charged through the ranks from a corporate perspective. Um, we were engaged in 2010, we were married in 2011. 
I fell pregnant. We had our first baby quite quickly, which was just a huge blessing. And we gave birth mm. to our first son in 2013. So for all intents and purposes, we were the couple that that had it all. We were probably the people, and I hugely recognize this, that people looked to and kind of just went, oh, like, how have they got this? Yeah. You know, like, they've, they've, they've met young, they've both got good jobs, they're doing really well. Hopefully they thought we were nice people. <laughs> um, you know, we had, we had a nice house, we drove nice cars, we had, you know, we, we, ha- we decided we wanted to have a baby and it just was easy. We got pregnant and I had no problems with my pregnancy. So, you know, we were on to a good thing. Life was, life was really, really great. Um, and then um, we decided to have another baby and I got pregnant really easily again. Mm-hmm. And shortly after our first son was born, we moved house. So we relocated um, back to Nottinghamshire because by this point we were living down south because that's where the streets are, are paved with gold. And then um, whilst I was pregnant with our second son, George just had this overwhelming feeling, which I can come back to and talk about some more um, as we get kind of maybe deeper into the interview, mm-hmm. that um, that we had to move, that we had to move back to my hometown um, of Nottingham. So we, we bought a house when I was six months pregnant and moved after our son was just born. So moved with an eight-week-old baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, that's when George started to be presenting with symptoms that just weren't, you know, he wasn't well. And we couldn't get to the bottom of it. He was, right. he constantly had a cold. He was always tired. He was really run down. He had low, really, really low energy levels. And because of the stage and the circumstance of our life in that we had two incredibly young children. So we, at this point, you know, we had a three month old baby and a two year old son and, you know, we just moved house. George was commuting to London from our house in Nottinghamshire, which is a big commute, you know, so not, you know, not for the faint hearted. We just continually put it down to the fact that this is what life is in in this season. You know, you're tired. Mm. Yeah, we're run down. You know, this is having kids. Everyone whinges about the tiredness and the exhaustion, which is a, you know, is part of the territory of, you know, young life with young children. Mm -hmm. But it it just didn't sort of seem to get better. And there was this continual niggle that was there. um, And essentially, basically, we pursued it. And to cut a long story short of how we actually came to this conclusion, we decided to send George for a colonoscopy, which is a process where you basically have a camera put up your bottom it's not that pleasant Mm -hmm. so he went off and had this procedure and I mean this is what our life was like at this point in time Aaron so he decided to have this procedure in London because he he, I remember him saying to me you know I'm so busy at work what I can do is I can go to work and then I can do this after work and I can come back and I can still be home for bath time we genuinely didn't think that there was a big you know right big big reason to be concerned mm-hmm. all of the healthcare professionals had said to us um there's not a reason to be worried he's so young he's 33 it's definitely not going to be bowel cancer and basically that day that he had the colonoscopy which was the the 9th of december 2015 he called me i was at home literally kind of quite literally rocking around the christmas tree with my little mm. boy in his bouncer mm-hmm. and my other little son at nursery putting all my fairy lights out thinking wow, you know, life's amazing. This is great. And he called me and that phone call was the moment that just shattered my life. Because having your husband ring you and say the words, I've got cancer, 
oh, it was just, it felt like a time-space continuum. And I, yeah, it was just hideous. And, and I remember saying to him, oh my gosh, you can't know this already. How do you know? Like, it can't be. Which mm. was actually, the route that I went down when he, when he told us was exactly the route that um, all of our friends went down afterwards when we actually had to then tell them the news, which was just as difficult as mm. him having to tell me. And I know now that that's a kind of psychological response in terms of, you know, plausible denial. You want of to course. rationalise with what you're hearing and you want mm. to kind of be like, this isn't true. This, this can't be the case. This isn't us. You know, do you not know who we are type thing? Mm. And I remember, you know, being on the phone with George and, and crying and him saying to me, it's fine. Like I, he'd managed to have the foresight. And this is the kind of incredible guy he was. He'd had the foresight to call my parents, tell my parents what had happened before he rang me. So he could say to me after he told me I've got cancer, your mum and dad are on the way. Your mum and dad are coming over right. and they're going to be here any minute and they're going to be they're going to be here. They're going to scoop you up and I'm on my way back from London, which was just so, so, so kind and mm. so thoughtful, which was just who he was to his core. Mm. So that was December 2015 and our lives in that instant, you know, I often joke with people and say, I, I sing the song from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which probably mm -hmm. shows the kind of generation that I am. Yeah. But it was, you know, this is a story all about how my life got <laughs> yeah. flipped, turned upside down. Because in that instant, it was my life was flipped, turned upside down. And um, yeah, it was just everything that we knew about our life was thrown thrown on the floor. Um, but then that, you know, that wasn't the end. That was the beginning of a new life and a new existence, which went on for 11 months. Mm. So we then lived in a season of, stage four bowel cancer so when George was diagnosed he had metastatic bowel cancer which is basically cancer club lingo for the fact that the cancer is bad and it spread right. to different parts of your body and in George's case it had spread to his liver which is not good news of course because obviously it's one of your major organs that you need Absolutely. to function mm. so George then lived through I think it was eight rounds of chemotherapy followed by six weeks of really intense radiotherapy followed by a season of kind of watch wait let's see where this where these horrible cells kind of come back then he did a huge huge surgery in the summer which is something called a liver resection which is essentially where you get chopped open and all of your liver that's got cancer and chopped out which is kind of just the most I can only imagine. epic right. surgery you can mm. imagine um, before he did that he cycled around London and raised a lot of money for bowel cancer UK what a guy. And then he I remember him saying to his oncologist, you know, just before he had this liver surgery, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to do more bike riding. And I'm just sort of all looking at him like he was completely mental. Mm. Eight weeks to the day after he'd had his liver resection, he cycled from London to Paris wow. and raised more funds for Bowel Cancer UK. Um, and then shortly after returning home from that bike ride, he, he started complaining again of, of, of feeling unwell. And we, you know, we genuinely thought that we were on the sort of positive track with this disease. Um, and literally eight weeks the day after he'd stood in front of the Eiffel Tower, you know, holding his bike, you know, in this kind of really momentous, epic photograph that I've got of him, he, he was dead. So he, he went downhill incredibly quickly um and peacefully passed away on the 18th of November 2016 so I was 33 and I had a three-year-old and a two-year-old and yeah it was, it was incredibly incredibly hard yet was incredibly beautiful and a moment of glory that I never expected at the moment of his passing so 
I suppose there was a real game-changing moment when he died, which was just absolutely beautiful. And there's no other words to describe mm. it, which is, I suppose, why my story is a bit different. Because I think probably most people are going to be expecting me to say, and then it was hideous, and then it was awful. And absolutely. then I lived this season of grief. And, and, it, and it has been, and it was all of those things, but it was equally really beautiful because of the the way in which George died and, and what happened to all of us at, at the moment of his death, which I'm sort of really excited to talk some more with you about. So, And just on that last bit, um, which we will touch on just in a few moments time, I can tell that you were going to have that response just from the way you were explaining your journey and everything that you've been through. So mm. when I think of cancer and what it's done to my family, it, it becomes a more of an emotional thing. And it's quite like, even when you talk about it, like demeanor and everything changes. Yeah. Hearing you say you can see that you've actually found the silver lining in this in this journey that you've had to take and I just find that incredible so I'm looking forward to hearing just a bit more about that I have put mm-hmm. that as a note about how it was one not only incredibly hard but also incredibly beautiful I mean I'm, I'm taking notes here because I don't want to miss anything and I'm sure <laughs> listeners are probably thinking ask her this ask her this because it's just it's so fascinating because what you've literally described is a fairy tale story and it's kind of a story that I suppose when we grow up there's there's a thing and I, I was I was doing a speech recently and I was saying how you know how we go to school and yeah you get your results and then you go to secondary school then you yeah. do your A levels then you go to university then you get married yeah. and you have kids and then you retire yeah. at sixty five it's yeah. almost like somewhere in a in our subconscious I suppose we're pre-programmed to believe we're just going to live oh, till 65 totally. yeah, and totally. everything's just going to fall in place so then what happens is Completely. when life comes and boom it hits you how it's hit yeah. you so hard yeah that's why people struggle and I just think yeah. It's inc- I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing this story because it will just wake people up Yeah, I'm very fortunate that nothing like that has happened to my wife or myself at, the, at this moment but I do try and live as if that could happen tomorrow mm. if that makes sense mm. so I yeah. kind of live with the, the nightmares that could potentially happen so you mentioned that you went traveling for a year as well and that obviously changed yeah. your insight. where did you travel so I didn't travel so I lived I, I mean sorry French. you lived you lived yeah outside. yeah I, li- I studied French at university and I lived in, Fran- in France I actually lived I mean to be honest I'd love to go back now as a 35 year old and do what I did then I lived <laughs> in the um, Loire wine valley which at the time as a 19 year old who basically liked drinking WKD blue it was completely lost <laughs> on me as like a kind of cultural experience but I, it was part it was part of my um, my studies in terms of what I had to do to kind of learn the language but yeah that was that was interesting and, and it's been really um, fascinating actually as I've taken some time particularly this last year because I've been taking some time out of, of work to actually I'm writing a novel actually so I'm writing the story of what Fantastic. what happened to us in in detail because I'm really mindful that to try and relay it in you know an hour even in two hours it doesn't do it justice which is why I'm, I'm writing the story of exactly you know all of the twists and turns and the beauty of of what unfolded um mm. but essentially you know, I've really realised that that experience that I had in France was really formative and mm-hmm. actually was equipping me with skills that I would need kind of in the moment of George's death. And it was also interesting in that some of the corporate experiences that I'd had as well. So often, you know, people always say, and it's, it's very cliche, isn't it? You know, when you're having a difficult time, people often say stuff to you like, you know, this all happens for a reason, or, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in difficulty where you learn. And do you know what? I hugely believe in both of those points. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you're in that hardship and you're in that season of struggle and people say that to you, if I'm being brutally honest, sometimes it feels like a slap in the face because you just... 
you just feel kind of like, well, you don't know what it is to be in the situation mm. I'm in. And, and how do you know that I've been positioned for such a time as this? But mm-hmm. I think you have to, I think you have to come to that um, conclusion yourself. I don't think other people can kind of impart that wisdom into you. Um, and it's taken me um, to live through the experience of my husband's cancer and his death to wake up to life does that make sense and I now look at all of these experiences that I've had the good and the bad and go wow like I was being like trained I was being Mm. because I was positioned into that set of circumstances the reason why that happened was to serve me later and and when you start to reflect back in that way you often see that you've done that you did do some really great learning in these seasons of struggle and they and they have served to make you a more full kind of person that can then cope and be more resilient in in times that will be even tougher maybe that you face in the future so yeah it's, it's interesting I, I just love that I just love your perspective on things and I think because I believe everyone gets these potential lessons and I call it potential lessons because yeah. it's it's what they take from it really and yeah. it's that you mentioned resilience as well and yeah. I I've had I mean I'm 32 now and, and I feel like I've had some ups and downs as well in my life which I'm sure every single person has yeah, you know, the, the grass is never everyone greener on the other story. side yeah. absolutely yeah. and that's I mean that's one of the reasons for this podcast but I'm grateful now, especially in hindsight, of all the the adversity and everything that I've been through. Because now when something trivial happens, say, for instance, in my day job or you get a flat mm. tire or something that would normally, I suppose, stress me out five, six years ago. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it just doesn't faze me because in the grand scheme yeah. of things, do you know what I mean? You, you, it's not like relevant. You said, absolutely. 100%. And I'm, yeah. I'm interested in this novel as well, which I think is going to be fantastic. Because like you said, we can't touch on everything within this short amount of time. But I think just from listening to the the opening 15 20 minutes people are going to be very interested in hearing more about this myself included and i think you're not alone in in what you've experienced Mm. but i'm sure that you're very unique in terms of how you've changed your perspective and i think if you can hopefully help other people who have maybe been through a similar situation Mm. to maybe look at it in the way that you said so i want to go back to that bit where you mentioned how incredibly hard it was Mm. but then also incredibly beautiful if you could yeah yeah so I, I suppose let's talk about the um the, the sort of hardship and the struggle first I think you have Please to do. kind of fully fully understand that to then understand mm. the, the beauty if that makes sense you have to sort Absolutely. of sit in the darkness to feel to feel the light which sounds quite cheesy but I think it's you know that's kind of essentially the the heart of this story and you know that moment that if we go back to the moment that I described to you earlier when you know George was diagnosed with cancer it was hideous and I often say to people actually that is when my life changed and that is when I started to grieve because that was the moment that our lives changed forever. At that point we were obviously still hoping that George was going to live to tell the tale but even if he had lived to tell the tale he would have been living to tell the tale with the with the scar of cancer and I think this is the part of cancer that is so widely misunderstood. People want to treat it like a disease that is um, a heart problem or an orthopedic problem, which is, you know, you go to the hospital, you have some medicine and you get better and your life's all okay again. Mm. And actually the reality of cancer at any stage that you get it is that it alters the che- that your mindset and the course of your life forever because it fundamentally makes you realize your own mortality in a way that you've never had to realize it before and it also therefore because of that 
makes you live your life very differently. It makes you live your life in fear. It also makes you live your life with joy because you appreciate and have such a, um, a broader perspective for the amazing and wonderful variety of what you see in everyday life because it mm. is you know that is where you live and in, in in the everyday not in the holiday that you've got planned for six months time or the, the night out that you're really looking forward to in a couple of weeks and and cancer really has a way of sort of shifting your perspective and and I think I think this shift of perspective is universal, but obviously I can only speak from my own experiences, not for, not for anyone else who's impacted by this disease. But what's interesting is, you know, once you kind of take some time to let the news settle, which you have to do when you get news that big. You know, I remember for George and I, we had the classic fight or flight response and we actually chose flight. So we ran away essentially to the Yorkshire Dales, which was where George's mother lived yeah. um, and basically spent sort of two or three days almost in hiding, trying to figure out what we were going to do. So, yeah, we, we ran away to the Yorkshire Dales and um, there we sort of, like, tried to look at the situation pragmatically. So both of us had, had sort of, I suppose, been, been trained in the corporate world because of the, the circumstances in which we'd met, which was on this kind of management training scheme. You know, we'd both been through quite rigorous corporate training. So we'd done all of the, you know separate the people from the problem how do you make a decision all of that kind of stuff and actually we kind of said you know what we've got to kind of implement some of these skills that we've been taught in terms of facing this this mm. beast that is cancer and that and that's kind of what we chose to do so um we actually sort of approached it as if it was almost a corporate problem and, and i and i feel like i'm i'm trying I'm, I'm even laughing as i say this yeah. because it because essentially this is what we had to do we had to look at it as not a black dark disease that was going to claim our life we had to look mm. at it as a unwanted guest that had maybe moved into our house which is how it felt yep. and then it was kind of like well, what what are we going to do with this unwanted guest how are we going to how are we going to make them feel part of the family even though we don't really want them to be here but accept the fact that they're going to probably be at our table now for the foreseeable future and we can't make them leave they're only going to go when when they want to you know mm -hmm. um so we we looked at you know what we could do and one of the first things actually that we did was um, and it was George's this was all driven by George not by me was he sort of said well I'm not having cancer and I, and I remember saying to him what are you talking about you know you, you've got <laughs> yeah. cancer like we can't we can't get rid of it just like that and he said no what I mean is I'm not I'm not calling it cancer I'm not I'm not going to be named as having cancer because there's mm. a lot in a name um I mean there's even a you know there's the beautiful Shakespeare quote of you know if Rose was anything else you know I can't I can't remember it um verbatim but it's about you know if it was called if it was still called a, if it was not called a rose would it still smell so sweet and that same um that same thinking and that same mindset is so true of cancer because the problem is, is you say cancer to people and people think death because Absolutely. people are so scared of death. And actually the reality these days is one in two people will get cancer. And also lots of people have cancer and go on to live really beautiful long lives. Also have cancer and live really successfully with cancer for a good number of years. But we all have this fear, you know, it's, it's, essentially the millennial tuberculosis that you get cancer and it's literally like then the grim reaper is, is there at your door yeah, yeah. um 
so George, George said to me from the, from the outset, I don't, I, I don't want cancer. I'm not going to have cancer. I'm going to have a project name. <laughs> I love so that. we, we, we were sort of like, I was like, okay. So it was, it was like an awful cheesy episode of the apprentice. We were driving up North <laughs> and um, he, he, we were there thinking of names and every name I came up with, which I can't remember any of the names I actually came up with. He, he was beating them down. And, no, that's awful. That's, that's horrendous. I can't have that. I can't have this. Then he said out of nowhere, Invictus. What about yeah. Invictus? And honestly, when he said that name, it was literally like a thunderclap in the car. It was yeah. it was yeah. amazing. Like it, it shot waves through my heart. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, why do we both know this name? We Googled it and we're like, oh, it's an aftershave. And then we were, you know, laughing <laughs> yeah. and joking, which again is another, you know, like that is a real great way of um, building resilience. So it sounds so awful and crude to say, but to try and find the fun and the smiles and the everyday humor in amongst, you know, this car crash that is your life is so important because you're still yourself and you still find the same things funny and you like eating the same sweets and going to the same places, even though you've got cancer. Um, so I remember we were in fits of laughter because we were kind of like, you know, why on earth have you chosen an aftershave advert? This is just really cheesy. But then when we when we went further into it, we found out that actually the original naming convention had come from this amazing poem by Ernest Headingway, um, which actually I now have in a frame on my wall at home. And the line, the closeout line of the, of the poem is this really sort of like thunderous close which basically says I'm the captain of my fate and I am the master of my soul and those words we were just like they were literally like boom to our hearts we were like yes okay this is it now we we are not having cancer we're having sort of project invictus and that was the start of us I suppose trying to reframe what was happening to us um but that also didn't mean that what was happening to us wasn't horrible you know like there's lots of cancer that is hideous that is absolute sleep deprivation because you're so anxious about everything that you you go to bed and you can't sleep and you're wide awake you're wide awake there's there's amnesia because of that because you're so exhausted you're and you're trying to keep the show on the road you can't remember the sometimes the most simplest of things there's the 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 huge impact that it has on your daily life I mean essentially I was still on maternity leave. You know, we had an eight month old baby. So I was supposed to be the one that was being looked after because I was up at night, you know, still with a baby that that didn't really know, you know, day from night, if I'm being Mm. brutally honest. And, um, you know, then I had to switch roles into this person that wasn't just caring for a two year old and an eight month old. It was also caring for a guy who was 33 who had cancer, which for him was just as difficult as it was for me because he was the the dad he was the father figure of the family he wanted to be able to provide and support his wife and his children and the reality of the cancer treatment that he had was that I mean he had really really top draw chemo which was like I remember them saying at the hospital it's it's pretty much like we're putting bleach in your veins and he had it every 11 days so he, he didn't have much downtime between treatment you know he'd go on he'd go on his um uh, he'd go and have his infusion and actually he then had to come home with a with a bottle attached to him which is a type of chemotherapy that, that lots of bowel cancer patients if anyone who's had bowel cancer is listening will be familiar with 
and you then basically take the pump it's called a pump home with you for three days so that was you know that was a minefield in itself because we had to explain to our kids what was going on that they couldn't jump on daddy and it wasn't ever that we kept anything secret from our children but you know, our young, our oldest child was two years old. You know, how do you explain to a two-year-old that dad, daddy's got cancer, that he's got this medicine on him? I mean, and actually, and that is what we explained to him. And we had to explain what the words meant to him. But, you know, they don't, at that age, they don't understand what it means. They It means nothing to them. You know, for all intents and purposes, for them, it was like daddy had a bottle of cowpile attached to him. Mm, you know, they mm, didn't get mm. the severity of it. Um, and it was really tough. And it brought up a lot of stuff for me around, you know, um, what do I do in terms of work so obviously I was off work on maternity leave I actually went back to work because I felt so much pressure because I was thinking you know I we'd have no idea how long this cancer journey is going to go on for and even though both of our employers were just the most supportive employers we could have ever asked for you always have that niggle in the back of your head that actually if this goes on for six years seven years are they, are they still going to be this supportive and this Absolutely. understanding and I remember saying to George you know I've got to go back to work George because we might be in a position where we're only rely, you know we're relying upon my salary and you know you can't work which he never really wanted to face into. So I went back to work. And even when I talk about it now, I I genuinely don't know how I did it. I went back to work with a one-year-old, just three-year-old and a husband with cancer um, and was kind of doing my job as well as commuting to London, um, you know, running a house. You know, it was absolutely exhausting and exhausting in a way that makes your soul ache. You know, it wasn't just it wasn't just sort of tired in a way that people say, oh, I'm tired, you know, it was was absolutely (laughs) exhausting. And it was the relentless sort of tsunami of it all, because the way that cancer works is you kind of, it is, it's a long boil disease, you know, it isn't a disease that, you know, it it goes, it doesn't go away like an orthopedic, um, you know, injury, like I said previously, and it, and it's, it's always there simmering in the background. And every now and again, you get these huge waves that crash over you. And they sometimes absolutely come out of nowhere. And it's about then how you how you protect yourself and what you what you do to, I suppose, build that resilience. And that's what we learned in that 11 months. Essentially, initially, it was like we were all at sea. We had no idea what the hell we were doing. And gradually, as the year went on, we built that resilience muscle and we learned the techniques around well, what is it that's going to help us. And we knew that there were certain things that for us as a family with the things that worked. But that took some time to figure out. It wasn't like the next day after George had cancer, we went, yeah, this is this is what we have of to do. Course, this is it's our not game just going to click, is it? Yeah. No, no. So it was so hard. It was so, so hard. So hard. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> Firstly, what a wonderful person he sounds like. And I, th- I just think your relationship, the way you were just feeding off each other and you had this whole story behind Invictus. So Invictus, for me, initially, yeah, Pakoroban. <laughs> it's the yeah, aftershave, exactly. which is what yeah. I remembered. But also, yeah. um, there's a film on it as well. Yes, there is a film. Matt Damon. Yeah. And it's yes. like Undefeated, Unconquerable. So yes. when, yeah. when you actually said it in this moment, that's what I was feeling. And I was getting almost goosebumps yeah. just thinking. Yeah, that's it. How you guys have done it. And... It just shows the power of like the human will and the importance yeah. of words because just by changing that name, you're not you're not necessarily saying to listeners here, listen, let's brush cancer under the carpet and pretend it's not here. What you're saying is, okay, we acknowledge it's here and some days we're facing it, but we're going to just face it in a more positive way mm. to help us move forward. And I think that's really, really yeah. important the way you've done yeah. that. And in terms yeah. of exhausting, I mean, we all sit here, myself included, and 
we'll have a 14 hour day or a 12 hour day or we've been asked to do some overtime and we feel do you know what I'm tired I'm shattered and here you are with no actual choice with your back against the wall just showing um, how powerful the human you know, mind and body in sync how much yeah. we're actually capable of doing and, and that also goes so back true. to when you mentioned George who, who did that run and I mean who, who in their right mind if you think about it from a logical <laughs> perspective thinks <laughs> after being chopped up I'm going to now go go raise money but do you know you know what though, Aaron? What I would say is, I follow some really inspirational people on Instagram. Um, mm. Particularly love the the three women um, who who created the You Me Big C podcast. Um, and Rachel Bland sort of sadly passed away actually mm. in September last year. And I follow I follow the girls actually that do that show on Instagram. And they one's a cancer survivor, one one is living with stage four cancer. They are always out exercising. And actually, what I would say is, it takes for you to realise that your body is fragile and that you have to look after it, to want to look after it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And actually, the irony is, is that George actually was a fitness fanatic even before he had cancer. So he was one of these people that would go to gym gym for fun. And I would always be like, what are you doing? But I have to say, since he has had cancer and, and obviously he lost his life to cancer, it's made me go as well. You know, your body is so precious. You have to look after it. You have to be mindful of what you're putting in it, in the way in which you're using it, in the way in which you're nurturing it, because it's it's precious to you. And it's your only rocket ship. You're not going to get another one. So you have to look after it. And I think incredibly, there is this mindset amongst the cancer community of, I am going to do the stuff that like, you know, like run a 5k or run a marathon because almost as well, you know, everyone knows the healing benefits of, of fitness. It's, it's Absolutely. proven, right? Absolutely. So there is this mindset of just, you know, well, I, I, w- I want to do this mentally even more than I've ever wanted to do it. So I, I do think it's crazy, but I also think, you know, not taking anything away from George because it was incredible what he did. But I also think you'll find that there are lots of people who are impacted by cancer that also have that absolute mindset of, no, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to raise this money. and I'm going to go and do this. Um, I think you're right. And I think and th- this is kind of what I want this podcast to do is not let somebody have to suffer with cancer or see somebody else suffer with cancer to really understand what they're actually capable of because we're so much yeah. we're living just in a comfort zone all the time and health and fitness is one of my biggest passions so yeah I've always been into it but then when I went to university it was it was more about vodka kebabs and hangovers uh, and then I and then <laughs> sounds I like you went to the same uni as me oh I'm pretty sure yeah the thing is we probably walked past each other and not even realized because we were out of our heads <laughs> so it was it was that kind of stuff but generally speaking when I was about 25 I think that's when cancer came into into my family and it, it affected my uncles and yeah my and one of the things I started doing then was really taking my health and fitness seriously. So I've like done personal training since then. I've trained over like three, four hundred clients. And I always now my analogy is I know the circumstances, for instance, similar to George, where you can be healthy, you can be doing everything right, and then it's just not meant to be. I mm. you can just come. But what I always try and do is just put the odds in my favour. And I always tell all my clients, just put the odds in your favour. You know when you lift some weights or you do any sort of C V exercise, cardiovascular you're 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 reducing the chances of of illness and that's kind of what mm. I do so every single morning without fail and unless I'm literally on my uh, deathbed sorry or I'm traveling I'm training and I don't have to enjoy it but for me you know it's four percent on my day just that's move. how I always yeah, absolutely exactly. just move just just, move. just 
just yeah. look after yourself and you touched on something there about um, what you put into yourself and I think it's important for the listeners just to know it's not just physical consumption like food and water no. it's also what you say in your Mental. mind I, yeah. absolutely so the yeah. project Invictus that kind of stuff is it's empowering and if you How can you just feed your soul yeah 100% 100% mm. so I just think there's this I mean there's, <clears throat> I could talk about what you said now for another five hours because there's so many <laughs> important lessons that I'm sure people are going to pick up on um thank you thank you for sharing all of that i want i I need to move it forward just ever so slightly otherwise we'll have a six hour podcast but we'll definitely (laughs) we can get you back on (laughs) that's not a problem so your life's obviously changed quite quite significantly now yeah yeah and it's something that obviously you you never prepared for what is a day like for yourself now And, and what i want to ask more in particular is obviously life's taught you so much so quickly already are there certain habits or traits that you maybe do on a daily basis that you think people listening could potentially benefit from? Yeah, so, I mean, the part of the story that we haven't got into and, and maybe it isn't one for the day, so we maybe don't have time, is is the what actually happened when George died, which, which I suppose was the absolute beautiful firework finale to this whole year. So if you imagine this 11 months when George had cancer, was like a, it was a slowly learning how to overcome adversity and build resilience um in a way that I'd never had to before and then when we realized that you know the end was nigh when he was told there was nothing that they could do and he was going to die but we didn't really know how long it was going to be and and what that what may or may not look like and how, how how painful it may be and all those other things that was the moment where if I'm really honest and being really really vulnerable I hit absolute rock bottom because I kind of went, I don't know what to do now. You know, like all of this other stuff that we've taught ourselves this far in terms of, you know, finding three things every day to be thankful for, doing exercise, you know, renaming things to make them feel more palatable, you know, eating well to make sure we're, you know, we're we're making our bodies feel as, as great as we can, sleeping where we can in amongst, you know, the chaos of two young children. All of those things that are the sort of things if you pick up any book on, on resilience um, and, and, and how to and how to kind of, you know, build and, and, and work that muscle. They just didn't work. And I I remember just thinking, oh, my gosh, like, what what do I do? And it was it was awful. And it meant that we were both in a really emotionally low state, which as I'm sure, again, lots of people will identify with when you're in that place, what happens is you lash out at the people that you love the most. So we were in this hideous set of circumstances, which was, you know, we knew that George was going to die. And we had what was probably the biggest row I think we ever had of our whole marriage, our whole relationship, because I was really angry at him. And actually, you know what, what I was actually angry about him, what I thought I was angry about him was not what I was angry about at him at all. I was actually angry at him because he was dying. And that's what I now realise with hindsight. You know, I was I was angry about him about something that he'd said to his mum or not said to his mum. But that wasn't, you know, when I've gone back and unraveled the, the reaction, reason, that, yeah. that wasn't the reason. The reason mm. that I was so cross with him was because I was angry that he was leaving me, that he was going to die, that he was not going to be here to bring up my kids, that I was going to have to do life on my own in a way that I'd never, ever expected to. And that night I went out, I I, I literally ran out of the house into my car. It sounds Hollywood dramatic and it actually was a little bit that way. Mm. And I got in my car and I drove and it was a dark evening, it was raining and I didn't know what to do and I just felt lost. 
really, really lost. And in that moment, I, I remember thinking in my head, where am I going to go? Who, do I, who should I go and see? I could go and see my mum and dad. I could go and see like my auntie. I could go and see my mum and dad's friends. Mm. Who, who's the person that I need? Like, who, who do I need? And I was, I was sort of trying all these people in my head to see if they fitted with the, the way I felt in my heart. And none of them felt like they worked. And actually at that point in time I was seeing a psychologist and I thought, do I ring her? Like, do I go and see her? I, I couldn't even bring myself to go and see my psychologist. He was the person that really, you know, I, I, I'd employed to mm. sort of be the person that I could take all these things to. So I decided in that moment that I needed to go to a church. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was kind of like, right, I'm going to go to a church. And if I'm honest, again, I think it was rooted in some level of um, utopian memory that I've got from childhood. Probably mm-hmm. movies like Home Alone, where Kevin goes to church and yeah, yeah, has that yeah. like magical moment I at Christmas you. when he's yeah. missing his mummy. You know, I was like, right, I'm going to go to church. Um, tried then to go to a church on this like rainy October evening at about, I think it must have been about five o'clock. Everywhere was locked up. And I was so angry, Oren. I can't tell you how angry I am. I, I was literally raging. So I remember I pulled my car over on a hard shoulder and I and I said, I literally got out of my car and I screamed. And, and at this point in time, I was not a person of faith. So there is a purpose behind me telling you the story about no, no, what my please practices do. are yeah, daily just, now, okay? Of course, of course. So I, I, I pulled over my car and I literally got out of my car. It was raining, I was screaming. And I literally, it was like I was a boxer in a ring. Like I was mm. mad, okay? And I literally screamed at the universe, if you are real, if you are real, you have to bleep, 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 show me. There was a lot of swear words. Yeah, yeah. I was so mad. I was crying. I was crying so much, you know, I couldn't even really speak. I was coughing. It was awful. I got back in my car and George texted me two words that just said, come home. And then I just wrote back, okay. He wrote back, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. And I just hysterically burst into tears and went home. Now, that that moment was a absolute another kind of life-altering moment. But it wasn't life-altering in that exact moment, if that makes sense. Because then what unfolded in the sort of three weeks following on from me going out and having this moment where I went for it and said mm. to God, you know, you are real. It's now or never because I don't know where else to turn. And, and God had never been someone, a force, an energy that I had ever looked to previously. But I was, I felt like I had nothing left in my cup. I had no place else to go. He was the only viable option left for me to, to go to. And um, what then happened and what unfolded around George's death, which we maybe don't have the time to discuss today, was just supernaturally, unbelievably beautiful he died the most glorified beautiful miraculous death that was completely driven by um sort of the holy spirit just moving in and taking residence in his room okay people i'm just going to play the outro now for this part of the show but the next episode should be available straight away on your feed whether you're using ios or android and i hope you enjoy this just as much as you've enjoyed this first part of this incredible story from Louise. I know the next part certainly gave me goosebumps, especially when she spoke about the supernatural stuff that she experienced, and I hope you enjoy it too. And once again, thank you for all your support, and if you do get a chance to leave this a review at the end of the show, I'd certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
And remember, this podcast is absolutely free. So all we ask in return is for you to share this with a friend and drop us a five-star review over on iTunes. Have an awesome day.